Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack, for what is now episode number 113. So before we get stuck into the Q&A, we just wanted to remind you that if you do enjoy this podcast, please remember to repost it onto your social media stories, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. And without further ado, let's get stuck into the very first question. So this one says, do you guys advocate for training to failure or keeping reps in reserve? Man, what a question to start off with. Yeah, it's uh, quite the controversial topic. It sure is, because I feel like everyone expects each other to pick a side, Mm. right? You need to set up camp and pitch your (laughs) tent there, and how dare you cross to the other side of the lake. So you pretty much need to say, no, you have to train to failure, or no, you have to keep reps in reserve. Mm. I'm under the impression that it highly depends on the context of what the heck are you doing and who are you? Yeah. I think it's we've always kind of been never really in one camp or the other with this Mm-mm. sort of answer and it'll be interesting to see what we say today. You can just imagine a big lake and there's <laughs> a camp on either side of the lake. TBD has hung a hammock across <laughs> the lake and we're just swinging having fun. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, now you can get that image into your head and now you can focus on what we're about to say. But when it comes to training to failure, I think first off, it's really important to distinguish that there are two main types of failure training. There's mechanical failure and there's muscular failure. So mechanical failure, that more relates to your technique and your skill during the an exercise and the proficiency to which you can actually perform a movement pattern. So mechanical failure, I think that relates a lot more to how are you actually moving through an exercise and you would reach mechanical failure if you can no longer perform that movement, perhaps through a full range of motion. So for example, imagine you're doing a bench press and you are trying to achieve a set of 10. Now you get your first six reps and you're all set up and the bar path goes from the top all the way down to your chest and all the way up. And you're always able to lock out your triceps with every Mm -hmm. single rep. And your spotter is not helping. And your (laughs) spotter ain't helping. He is not or she is not touching that bar. Well, they are not. They are not. Stay the (laughs) heck away. (laughs) But they are not touching that bar. But after your sixth rep, this weight's starting to feel pretty heavy, but you are damn adamant that you are going to get to 10. But what starts to happen is that bar starts to no longer actually touch your chest. It may be on the seventh rep, it stops an inch above your chest. The eighth rep, it stops two inches above. By the time you pump out your final rep at 10, heck, you might've only moved that bar a few inches. So in that case, I would argue that that is more mechanical failure. You're not actually performing the movement correctly. However, technically you still moved the weight. Would you say that Jack? Yeah. 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 So that's mechanical failure when your form breaks down. And I would argue that you shouldn't be reaching mechanical failure. Not even for one rep? For one rep. Maybe you should reach mechanical failure for Mm. one rep and then you stop the set because you failed. And if you keep going, either they're just not going to be very productive reps or you do risk hurting yourself and causing an injury. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think there is times when they're like one or two reps at mechanical failure is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does depend on the exercise. Like for 
a deadlift or an RDL, I want to avoid hitting mechanical failure at all. But for something like a bench press, if the bar doesn't hit your chest, then I almost, when I see that, it just looks a bit embarrassing. Like it's that one exercise where the range of motion is so pre-established, the bar has to touch your chest. And if it doesn't, then, or if your spotter is yanking it up every rep. The worst is when the bar isn't touching your chest and the spotter <laughs> yeah, is yanking it up whammy. with every rep. Like, man, just lower the weight. This, this ended once you did your first rep. <laughs> yeah, 100%. But what's the other type of failure? Yeah, so that's mechanical failure when your form breaks down. And of course, it's always going to come down to context, like you said. Or for example, imagine you're in a powerlifting meet and you're pulling a weight from the floor. Obviously, powerlifters are taught the best form mm. in order to deadlift a weight off the ground. But yeah, if you are trying to deadlift like 700 kilograms or something like that, yeah, your back might round a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But if you can stand up tall at the end and hold that weight and then scream, hell yeah, technically you lifted the weight. But yeah. you're not going to be doing that form for sets of 10. Mm. So that's mechanical failure. But the other type of failure is muscular failure. So this is essentially when your muscles can no longer produce enough force to actually push the weight. So going back to our bench press example, you would reach muscular failure if you brought that bar all the way down to your chest and then you were trying to push that bar straight back up, but the fibers in your chest and your triceps and your delts just couldn't generate enough force for you to actually get that mm. bar back up. That's when you would have reached muscular failure. And that's when you really need a spotter to yank that thing off of you like, <gasps> help. <Yeah. laughs> but that's muscular failure when your muscles fail, but you are still going through the correct mm. form. And in that case, I would argue in most cases, you should try to avoid muscular failure. Yeah. But this is where there's caveats. <laughs> yeah, again, it just depends. For me, it just depends on the exercise. Like, again, a bicep curl. A lot of the time, you for pretty much every exercise, you're going to reach mechanical failure before muscular. Mm, so, you'd hope so. Yeah. Like when you reach a certain intensity, form is probably going to slip slightly. And that's... Again, it depends at what point, like is a 1% reduction in form, is that technically mechanical failure? Like mm -hmm. there is a blurring of the lines there. Yeah. But uh, I think a great example for when that line is blurred is especially with pulling movements for mm. your back. So things like barbell rows, T-bar rows, seated row. Yeah. Because guys, if you truly want to progress, you can't just stick to textbook form sometimes. You can't just be sitting on a seated row and just be perfectly stretching out your arms and stretching your scaps and then have your chest up and just perfectly bring that bar back to your chest, you know, and so mm. on. Sometimes to achieve those final few reps, you don't want things to look sloppy, but you need to add a little bit of momentum. And they've actually done this in research studies too. Yeah. Yeah, they have. And I guess we should kind of segue onto the topic of failure training versus reps and reserves. Mm -hmm. So for me, I just talk, when I think of failure, I just think of like very high intensity training. Like mm. you're putting everything into that set and whether it's, it's most likely going to be mechanical failure, but it might be muscular failure as well, depending like for a lateral raise, like if you kept your form perfect, you could reach muscular failure fairly easily without having to go to mechanical failure. Mm -hmm. you, it's more of a willpower sort of thing for that sort of exercise. You just have to ensure that your form stays really good, but if you can't raise your arm up, then technically you've hit muscular failure. 
Yeah, but this is where I think people need to understand that training to true muscular failure, that is a skill. Mm. And I think that people get confused with training to failure and training to discomfort. Yeah, or just training at their perceived level of hard. Yeah, they're like, oh, this is getting difficult. I better stop. Yeah. But your muscles could have kept going, man. But Mm. your mind, that's what held you back. Yeah. It's even, you can apply this to anything like even nutrition, like people eating, like Mm. stopping once they perceive that they are a little bit full versus Mm. they still got half of their meal in front of them to eat. Mm -hmm. And like, I would, uh, I would phrase this a little bit more black and white and I'll broach this question to you. I've definitely got the answer to this right now. Like, would you say not training hard enough is worse or training very hard? Yeah, I honestly think that more people need to be concerned that they're not pushing themselves hard enough yeah. in the gym compared to that they're going too hard and too mm. intense and they're risking overtraining. Yeah, because we got to remember that the reason why this topic has gained so much popularity is it's not your regular gym goer who is saying, oh, should I be concerned about training to failure? Mm -hmm. Like it's not Karen at the gym. (laughs) It's really hardcore bodybuilders and people who want to maximize all of their progress. And think about Jordan Peters. (laughs) Yeah, Jordan Peters and and so on and so forth. Our audience, they're not, sure, there's a lot of people who are those sorts of people, but there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who aren't. And regardless, people still want to maximize their progress, but not everyone instinctively trains to failure. I certainly didn't instinctively train to failure when Mm -hmm. I first started training. It's something that you develop over time because it's a skill. So on that note, basically what we're trying to say is, is more people do need to be worried about training hard enough and not training too hard. (laughs) Yeah, because this is the thing. This is where reps and reserve comes into play. Because one, if you haven't actually developed that skill of truly being able to train to failure, and I'm talking about that you are on a bench press or you're on a shoulder press, it's always those pushing movements, man. (laughs) The pulling movements, they're all right. You can generally get that weight up. It's those pushing movements where it's either this weight's going up or it just ain't no matter how much I try. So truly training to failure is imagine if you're on a dumbbell shoulder press, you bring those dumbbells down to your delts and you're trying to push them up with all your might, but they will just not move. That is a skill to actually reach that level and be like, gosh darn, these weights just ain't going up. I failed at that rep. But that's where you need to distinguish between are you training to failure or are you training to discomfort? Because things really get uncomfortable. And I would argue that depending on the exercise, it can be uncomfortable from rep one. Imagine if you're on a hack squat, those Mm. things are tough, but you got to do another 12. (laughs) So training to failure versus training to discomfort, because if you only stop when it starts to feel hard, then you could probably still be like five to 10 reps away from true failure. And you could really, really be missing out on some solid progress there. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Because we we know approximately that the the most benefit from hypertrophy comes training around like zero to four reps from failure. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, depending on the exercise, reps three versus four, even two reps in reserve, it might not feel that different. Mm -hmm. So especially for the more isolation-based exercises where the risk of injury or risk of impairing recovery is very low, 
there's personally, I don't see any reason why you can't go to failure very regularly for mm-hmm. those movements. Yeah, something like a bicep preacher curl. You're yeah, gonna be okay. A lateral raise, <laughs> a chest fly, all those sorts of ones. The caveat is that there is gonna be so much individuality in terms of recovery capabilities. Mm-hmm. Like some people can do four sets of squats to failure. I can do maybe two. I probably can't even go to failure for those two. <laughs> Otherwise, like something's going to happen. But think about true muscular failure on a squat. Yeah. You would drop the bar and fall to the ground. And that's seriously dangerous. Mm, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So that's a thing. So one, distinguish whether or not you're training to failure or training to discomfort. And actually training to failure, like you said, it's those final few reps. Some people call money reps. Like Mm. they're the ones that every rep counts, but it's like compound interest. They add up and it's those final few, but it's a really cool skill to have. For example, imagine you are on a dumbbell shoulder press and you're trying to get a set of 10. I feel like I've done shoulder press so many times over the years that by the time I'm to like the seventh rep, I know how many reps that I have left. Like I know if I'm going to get to nine or I know if I'm going to get to 10 and 99% of the time I'm right. It's rarely that I'll get to 10 and I'll be like, Oh, I feel like I could do two more. No. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess we should move on to the point of what can people do? So how can people know whether they're training hard enough? And I, I have two answers for this. One is more, more complicated, I guess, than the other. Like the Mm -hmm. first answer is if you're trying to add a rep or add some weight every single session, then naturally you're going to hit failure at some point. Mm. And depending on how many reps you start off with in reserve will depend on how quickly you hit that. Because I wish we could, but we can't increase strength linearly forever. Even the strongest people in the world, they imagine if we could add five kilos onto a squat every session, like within a year, we would be the most successful squatter on the planet. It would be incredible. And that's why <laughs> athletes at the very top end, Olympic weightlifting or power lifters, you'll see their totals and they'll be like, yeah, my last big competition was a year ago. And this year I added on 1.5 kilograms to yeah. my total. 1.5 kilograms. That's a little pink dumbbell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so basically what I would encourage you to do is, let's say we pick an exercise. So barbell bench press, you have a rep range of eight to 10 and you do like even just focus on that one exercise for the coming weeks and be like, okay, I'm going to try my best this, or I shouldn't say weeks, I should say maybe even months. I'm gonna try my best this block to increase however I can in this. So I'm gonna start at eight reps and choose a weight that is difficult for me and then every single session, I'm, if I hit the top of the rep range, so if I get three sets of 10 reps, I'm gonna whack on some more weight, let's say two and a half kilos, cause that's pretty standard. And then you basically keep that up until you reach failure. But the key here is just being really honest with yourself and ensuring that you're putting in all the intensity that you can. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say just do it on one exercise because if you try and do it on your dumbbell shoulder press as well and your lat pull down, and your leg extension and your squat, then it's gonna come kind of all compound at once, which will be quite difficult if you're not used to training to failure. Yeah, I feel like with a mesocycle, obviously across the board you wanna be progressing, but it's really fun to just pick like two or three main movements and definitely have them for a different muscle group, each one, Mm. that you can truly just knuckle down and try to progress with for that block of training and then swap it around. So for example, you could try to progress with your bench. You could try to progress with your barbell rows and you could try to progress with your RDLs or hack Mm. squats. Yeah. 
And I think another really important thing is actually becoming very skilled and proficient in a movement pattern first, Jack, before you actually start adding on a bunch of weight. And Mm. I certainly learned this working as a personal trainer at UQ Sport for so many years because people would always reach muscular failure before they actually reached mechanical failure Mm. because they just hadn't confidently mastered that yeah. movement pattern imagine we're, we're using bench for so many examples but it is an awesome empowering <laughs> exercise but imagine on a bench press someone actually might be strong enough in their chest and their triceps and their delts to push up that weight but they're uncomfortable under the bar they're not confident with it mm. and when they're trying to push up those final few reps their butt starts wiggling around like some people actually bring their feet off the ground or their feet start stomping like side to side it's it's really weird it's like seeing a fish out of water flap around it's like no (laughs) keep your feet down keep your butt on the bench like brace and push that weight up and you can probably get another three reps but because they're squiggling around it just makes the movement very awkward and unfortunately they can't do it so certainly master the movement pattern before you then start adding on a bunch of weight but i would say in that process like when you say master, like, let's be honest, that takes years. <laughs> okay, yes, you're not Gandalf, but... <laughs> <laughs> but what I would say is within that process of, like, the first few months or first few weeks of a lift, mm. because of the neurological adaptations and becoming more proficient at that movement, you can actually be quite aggressive with how quickly you up the weight. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but moving on to my second option that I was alluding to, this is definitely more instantaneous and you can do it within the session and get a result straight away in terms of, are you training hard enough? And at the end of the day, this all resolves around your mental presence Mm. and the amount of intensity you can give mentally. And that's why lower body training is so hard because you need to, there's that central nervous system drive and tax associated with things like a heavy squat, a heavy deadlift, a hack squat, which, and there's no way around it. If you want to train hard and get the best results, there needs to be something up there that's, that's turning. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't, you can't go into a set like, I don't know, listening to a a podcast or some people can, but. (laughs) Or you can't just be having a conversation with your Mm. friend and then be like, oh, better go for my set. And then just like go immediately. Like you need to get yourself in the zone, psyched up, turn on your favorite music, being in that mental headspace is so important if you truly want to maximize your performance in those big lifts. Yeah. So basically this second option is something called an AMRAP and it stands for as many reps as possible. So let's say you're doing a a barbell back squat and usually do, let's say 80 kilos for eight reps and you've been stuck at that for a while maybe. So what you would do in in an AMRAP is probably just do one of these sets per session because they're quite taxing, especially if you're not used to training this hard. And you need to really prepare yourself mentally. So psych yourself up, put on your favorite song, get a spotter, do whatever you need to do. And basically what goes from here is you you choose that 80 kilo amount for the squat and you do as many reps as you can whilst avoiding mechanical failure. So what I'm trying to say is keep your form good and acceptable, but do as many reps as you can. And let's say you usually get the three by eight or just eight reps in general and you get 16 reps for your AMRAP. Like you've just doubled the amount you can squat and you were saying you had been stuck at that for a plateau for a few weeks. Or yeah, man, I'm always training with just one rep in reserve. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of a wake up call in terms of you, you literally had eight reps in reserve. 
for that movement. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would be surprised at how many reps in reserve they might have for particular lifts. And I've definitely been guilty of it in the past, even for some isolation movements. I'll towards the end of a block, like the final week, I'll often do like an AMRAP set for, for a lot of my movements. And sometimes I am a bit surprised as I might get a few extra reps here and there, and that'll just modify my starting position for the following block. Mm. And yeah, it's just really good to be in the know. And I bet that's humbling as well. But mm. also sometimes we need that reminder, like, man, I'm actually capable of a lot more than this. Yeah. Because that's where the argument comes in, where if people are always like, never trained to failure, always train with reps and reserve. But again, you're not training to failure, you're training to discomfort. Let's say that you felt uncomfortable at eight reps, but you do an AMRAP set and you know that you can do 16 reps. But let's say someone's like, okay, and you were assuming that eight reps was you training to failure or one rep in reserve. And someone's like, oh, you should start off your mesocycle with three reps in reserve and you're only doing 80 kilogram squats for five reps. Man, what are you leaving? Like 11 reps in the tank? You ain't even close <laughs> to money reps. You ain't even warm. You're freezing cold. Yeah. South Pole. <laughs> Legit. <It's, laughs> there's an ice age coming. <laughs> but... I guess this, uh, we should round off with maybe some practical applications mm -hmm. in terms of how often should people train to failure? Should, is it okay if they do it all the time? Mm -hmm. All that kind of stuff. So why don't we kind of relate to what we do personally? I think that might be useful for everyone because ultimately we're the ones giving the advice. Mm -hmm. So what I do myself is I'm not the sort of trainee who says, yeah, I, I train balls to the wall all the time. I always go to failure for all the lifts because I don't, and I have done that in the past and I've gotten injured and I've even reduced my volume. As people know, I only do like two sets for squats, two sets for RDLs, even two sets for hacks and hip thrusts. And the combination of lowering my volume and not going to failure all the time has helped me prevent injury. So I would much rather train with like one or two reps in reserve for those bigger lifts and mainly for the lower body and then be safer in the long run. But for the upper body exercises, I can pretty much train to failure from in a six week block of training. I usually train to failure from like week two or three. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I don't start at failure for any upper body movements, compound lifts, I should say. So things like a bench press or a row is that if I go to failure from week one, I'm, I, it just really stores my progression. Yeah. I find it hard to progress. I think mentally and physically, because if it's mm. your very first week of a mesocycle and you go in there and you don't even get all of your expected reps on a bench, that can be a little bit of an ego hit. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And especially I would consider myself like creeping into that advanced lifter stage. Mm -hmm. You can't expect that sort of progression every single week unless you purposely pull back from week one, which I have tried in the past. So let's say I finish a block at 100 kilo bench and then from the next block, I start at 95 kilos. Psychologically, I don't really like that. It does work for some lifters, but I would rather try and start at least like 100 kilos again with maybe a few less reps and then go from there rather than pulling back significantly in the amount of weight I'm lifting. Mm -hmm. And in terms of accessories, I basically start from failure because of the quick recovery capacity from those i don't have any issues with progression which yeah. is good for example imagine if you're on a leg extension yeah like you can push that thing and mm. then finally that final rep isn't fully going up you're like okay man these quads just ain't contracting <laughs> yeah <laughs>
Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. But uh, that's that's it from me. Uh, what about you though with your failure training? Yeah, so again, I think it's a skill that you're going to have to master over the years and you're really gonna have to continue to just see what am I truly capable of? What are my limits? And also going into sets telling yourself that you can, never go into a set telling yourself that you can't, like, man, I'm not gonna get these 10 reps or mm. I just can't lift this weight or whatever it may be. You need to have self-confidence because psychology plays a huge role in lifting heavy ass weights. So yeah. I'll tell you that. So be confident with it and tell yourself that this weight is going up. <laughs> so that's one of the number ones. But I'm pretty much along the same lines as you, Jack, when I enter into a new mesocycle is that obviously I write myself a program with specific exercises and I give myself a specific rep range that I want to work in mm. for each one of those exercises. But the very first sessions or the first week of sessions there, I usually aim for the bottom of the rep range with a certain weight. So let's say that I'm doing a dumbbell shoulder press and I've given myself a three sets of eight to 12 and I pick the 18 kilogram dumbbells and I get three sets of eight. Then the next week I'm going to either try to match that or at least get one set of nine and then two sets of eight. But if I get those three sets of eight on that very first week, I want to make sure that I probably could have at least eked out at least another ninth or a 10th rep. Yeah. But again, even achieving those sets of eight, that's still really hard mm. training. But I don't want to start off a mesocycle with going like going to zero reps in reserve for those three sets of eight because that is going to be really hard to continue to progress with. Yeah. So doing that, those are for my main compounds, but I'm along the same lines as you. I do not mind going to failure on machine-based exercises because there's such a quick recovery capacity. But heck no, I'm not going to failure on something like an RDL or a bench like just gosh darn. So it's a skill that you need to continue to master and practice. But I also really think that filming your sets helps because that helps you distinguish between, okay, how did this set actually look versus how did it actually feel and watching it back and getting someone else's opinion too. They could either watch your exercise video or they can actually watch you in person. And if it's someone you trust and they're honest, they can tell you like, damn, that was a hard set or mm. I think you'd go heavier. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that's why we, we both get videos from our clients mm -hmm. of, of how they train. Yeah, because if their form is spot on, it's almost too spot on. It's like your back is almost in too much of a perfect position during these rows and their face is straight and they're not grimacing at all. It genuinely just looks like they're not actually trying that mm. hard. They're you playing can, golf. Yeah, you can say straight up, are you in the gym or are you playing golf? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you can lift a little bit heavier. And if you want to be a good coach, you have to be honest with your clients. But, yeah. And if that's how they're truly going to get results is by pushing themselves and you have to push them. Mm. But overall, I think that we have the consensus that more people should be more worried about not training close enough to failure rather than training to failure. Yeah. And more often than not, you're probably leaving a few too many reps in reserve. <laughs> I think so as well. And... We have to remember that this argument was, it's not really, a, it's more of a debate than an argument was mm -hmm. sparked by people who really can train to failure very often and who embrace that, not people who are your regular gym goers or even people who are 
hobby builders or casual bodybuilders. So, well, I have a question for you. Who do you think is going to get better results long-term? Someone who is training to failure on every set and truly training to failure or someone who is leaving reps and reserve on every single set, but they're not risking that injury. Yeah. It's just going to be, it depends. Cause mm-hmm. like it depends how many reps in reserve they're leaving. They're leaving, leaving like more than five reps in reserve or six reps in reserve. I think the person training to failure is going to get better results, assuming that they don't get injured mm-hmm. and assuming they have like the correct volume for their requirements and all that kind of stuff. But more often than not, I would say the person who trains harder is going to get better results. Yeah. Yeah. I'm along the same line of thought. <laughs> yeah. And you can apply it to, to basically everything in life, but you just got to be smart about it. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Well, ultimately, train hard. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So this next question says, what's the deal with dry scooping pre-workout? Boy, if I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know either. I don't think I've ever dry scooped pre-workout. No, I definitely like my pre-workout with a good amount of hydration in there. And I really like it hot too. <laughs> yeah, I've... I've had maybe a cold pre-workout once and sorry, once since I've started having hot pre-workout and it's definitely not quite as nice. Mm -hmm. And what we're alluding to there guys is that if you want to take your pre-workout to the next level, prepare it like a hot tea or an instant coffee. So just put it in a mug, add some boiling water, let that thing cool down and then sip it. So delicious. Mm. It enhances the flavor like crazy, especially in the winter months. It's just like a hot sweet drink before the gym. Yeah. I do mine slightly differently because if you pour boiling water into it, it takes half an hour to cool down. So some people like to drink it straight away like me. And so I just pour in some hot water from the tap or I just pour in some boiling water and then some cool water. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, I guess maybe I'm just like a little bit more patient, but either way it ends yeah. up at the same temperature. Cause what if you want to uh, sip it walking to the gym or at the gym? I guess I just like do that 10 minutes before I decide to go for my walk to the gym yeah but in the summer months put that thing into a nutribullet with some ice and a little bit of water and blend that up and it's like a pre-workout snow cone Mm. but either way i think that dry shotting pre-workout is like the least pleasant way to ever have pre-workout and also interestingly enough if you wanted to apply some exercise physiology and human digestion to this question we know that the more volume in a stomach the greater the rate of gastric emptying. And they actually prove this to be true with cyclists. So for example, imagine that a cyclist is out on a really long ride and they're riding for like two hours and they need some intra-workout carbohydrates. What they actually did was they did studies where if a cyclist just has a pure gel, but no water, or if a cyclist is just sipping on a Gatorade, or if a cyclist just downs like half a liter of Gatorade, And then how long it would take for those carbohydrates to leave the stomach, go into your small intestine, be absorbed into the bloodstream, go to your working muscles and continue to fuel them and raise blood glucose levels as well. Now, what they actually demonstrated was if you consume carbohydrates with more fluid, it's going to put more pressure on the sphincter in the bottom of your stomach, and that's going to increase the rate of gastric emptying. So the way that I look at this is that if you're just dry shotting pre-workout and you're not drinking any fluid with it, it's going to take some sweet ass time to actually get into your small intestine and for you to actually absorb that caffeine. Yeah, it will. It'll take longer. Yeah. But at the same time, do people just dry shot the powder? Do they drink anything? Yeah, there's no 
predefined notion of dry <laughs> scooping, I think. Urban dictionary, we need to hit it up. I think dry scooping is just when people, I just apply it to when they're just not very fussed about how they intake their caffeine. They mm. just get some, chuck it in their mouth, sip some water, and that's it. They don't chew the pre-workout and swallow it. That's, I think that's maybe how you interpreted dry scooping. I, maybe that's because the only that's the only component that I ever see on Instagram stories. Mm. I only ever see the 10 or 15 second clip of them scooping the pre and then sh- shotting <laughs> it back. And then that's it. And I'm just like, this is a thing? Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to sit down and enjoy that? <laughs> I think it's like, say for me in the improvement season, I might make a big blended smoothie full of all these ingredients i don't really care about the flavor i'm not going to add any cinnamon to it because Mm -hmm. i don't care about the flavor i just want to get some food in me because i'm not food focused in the slightest and i would apply the same thing to this people just want to have some caffeine and get into the gym and start working out whereas because we enjoy the flavor of pre-workout so much at the moment especially when it's hot we would so much rather just have a nice big hot mug of of pre-workout oh man well clearly i am not very well informed or educated in the area of dry scooping pre-workout but i guess that does make sense obviously if you just have a pre-workout bottle in your gym bag Mm. and then you have a water bottle you don't want to mix the two that the only thing that i would say there then is just make sure you are drinking a decent amount of fluid so that you can increase that rate of gastric emptying so you Mm. really get the hit you're after with the pre-workout it's not just some powder sitting in your empty stomach yeah i think people uh, might even be misconceived like people might even dry scoop it with the intention of hitting them Mm. faster and i know like when i first started training at school even like people would do that and think that they would kind of you know they would play along with it afterwards and feel like they had a rush and all that kind of stuff when in reality having more water volume would would make it hit you faster i've actually heard stories about that people backstage at bodybuilding shows who are scared to drink water but they want to carb up so they eat like dry oats oh, man. i'm like oh god who's your coach man <laughs> wow but anyway i think this is where we'll wrap things up we talked for a long while in that first question and as always we'll finish with something that we learned this week So I learned this week that sometimes you just need to listen to your boyfriend and (laughs) order something online and it's going to come super duper quick. So like I mentioned, sometimes I have hot pre-workouts, sometimes I have cold pre-workouts. Now I've been putting up with this Nutribullet cup that has a crack in the side for a good two years now, Jack? Yeah. A long time. And <laughs> the and thing is... stealing my oat, oat bowl for longer than that. And and using Jack's oat bowl because it's just, it's the perfect depth for oats and the perfect width. It's the perfect oat bowl. Anyway, this is back to the Nutribullet cup. I've been making my smoothies in this Nutribullet cup with a crack in the side for like a solid two years now. And because it has that crack in the side, every time I twist it, I do it next to a window, but I twist it and then it sprays out the window. And it also goes on the windowsill. And sometimes I just, well, not even sometimes, basically every day I get like this spray of pre-workout or iced coffee on the windowsill. And Jack just looks at me like, just buy a new Nutribullet cup online. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I will, I will. Two years later, I finally did it. And it arrived the next day. So sometimes, guys, just 
Go online. Dirt cheap as well. For, yeah, it was so cheap. So just go online for like three minutes, order your thing, and it's going to be delivered to your house in no time. And you're no longer going to have to clean up all these messes. So yeah. I don't know if that's a te- definition of me just biting the bullet. Why did I put up with that thing for so long? Sometimes it's just hard to motivate yourself to do simple things like that. Like mm. there's just more important things to do, but yeah. you can apply that to a lot of things, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I put a hell of a lot more effort into going to the gym for three hours, but can't sit down online and just order a Nutribullet cup with yeah. my fingers. Yeah. Anyway, no more messes in our kitchen. <laughs> so something that I learned this week was always follow instructions and read instructions carefully and listen to what other people say. And cause Nina, <laughs> Uh, naturally Nina on Instagram she warned me of this but I still managed to muck it up so I got my new blender and it comes with that tamper tool where you basically whack the food in the blender and it helps mix it all and the the lid on the blender has a special device which prevents you from stabbing the blade with the tamper tool because the tamper tool is only made from plastic but me being me I and in prep of course I can blame it on prep I took the lid off and started stamping the food while it was on and then I ended up blending half my tamper tool into my nice cream. Oh. So yeah, unfortunately, a, a batch of nice cream was wasted. But in doing that, I actually learnt uh, the casing custard with frozen fruit is actually a really good option as well. Mm-hmm. Because I had to, I, I, we ran out of ice, so I basically had to have the casing custard with fruit, which was really good. I feel like we always discover a new way to master our own craft. <laughs> to make the same thing. <laughs> yeah, to make, but we always learn it through a mistake. Like a few weeks yeah. ago when our microwave broke, we're like, oh man, we can make protein cakes in a pan yeah. on the stove. Would have never thought of this if the microwave didn't shat itself. So mm. yeah. But speaking of nice cream, we actually have a new YouTube video out on how to make nice cream. So yeah. I did film a nice cream tutorial for you guys, step by step. If I get anyone asking me recipe, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. It's a super simple video. It's only five minutes long and it's very self-explanatory. It's literally only three ingredients. It's just casein protein Wait, powder. Don't tell them. Oh, whoops. Sorry. Go watch the video. I'll put the link in the description below. There's a cream of wheat video up there as well. Yeah. So we are getting amongst the YouTubes and making more recipe tutorials because we're always talking about these things, but people Mm -hmm. are like, how do you make that recipe? (laughs) So we are giving you guys the deets in detail. So head over to those simple videos and enjoy. And obviously like them, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment, let us know what else you want to see from us too, Mm. especially other recipes as well. And we'll be filming those in the future. Awesome. So thanks so much for listening, guys. Again, if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to repost it onto your Instagram. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.